I can just hold space for other people to dream with us and we capture those dreams. And so, you know, of course, if you have just me in a room, you just have my own thoughts, which is, you know, maybe not worth much. But if you have me and 15 other people in the room and you facilitate that properly, then you have a lot of dreams that you can bring, you can bubble up and you can, you know, create a roadmap and a vision around. And that is design. Design is co-creation, co-collaboration. It's not, you know, and when we talk about working autonomously, teams working autonomously, we're not saying do it all yourself, right? We're saying hold space for other people to do it with you, but autonomously sort of drive, drive the vision forward. Hi everyone, welcome to the Design Drives podcast, where we explore why, how, and what design and designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers, the most innovative creators on the planet, to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to make a positive impact in the world. In the episode, I had the pleasure to chat with Samuel Northway, head of design at Mason in Seattle. And in the past, he worked as the VP of brand and product design at Goldman Sachs. He worked as a lead designer on Deloitte and as a design director at AT&T, besides many other experiences. During the episode, we talk about his mindset and motivation working in the creative industry and uncover many insights on how to approach innovation projects or innovation in general without getting burned out and create shared ownership, which is critical for innovation to get moved forward. We also talk about how he has grown design maturity at Goldman Sachs, his learnings as a designer and leader, and what opportunities designers have when changing industries, and how to overcome the fear that is connecting of leaving your company. Further, we also explore the intersection of physical and digital design, and how new business models actually bring the processes of physical and digital much closer together. Enjoy the episode. All right, um, I'm here with Samuel Northway. Thank you so much for taking the time, Samuel. Thank you. So you are head of product design at Mason, uh, which is a company based in Seattle, which focuses on a smart device platform um, that is basically managing the infrastructure and the development for delivering dedicated services um, and allow companies to you know, manage different devices across the companies. Um, you actually have experience working multiple industries before then, working at both in-house uh, and consultancy, working in art direction and product design. So we're looking forward to dive into sort of your experiences working in different industries, applying design um, and creative in different sectors uh, and sharing basically some perspectives for, for other designers. So we're looking, looking forward to that. Before we kind of jump into that, Samuel, it would be really cool if you could share a little bit about your background, a little bit about your, your story for the audience. Yeah, thank you so much, Sebastian, for having me. It's great to be here. Not to go too, too far back, but when I was a kid, my father was a creative director. And so, you know, my allowance money came from photo retouching and book layouts and Photoshop. And that's how I went to go see a movie on the weekends. Uh, my, my sister Hannah is a developer and my other cousins are designers. And so, you know, all that just to say that I've had incredible mentors in my family uh, and also at the different agencies and companies I, I've worked for. Um, like you said, I have a background in what I would call traditional, you know, brand designs so things like visual identities and campaigns and storyboards and photo shoots and, and video and that kind of stuff and spent a good amount of my career as an art director sort of leading up to being a creative director. And now for the past, I guess, 10 years or so, I've been uh, leading product design teams. So teams of software designers, industrial designers. Uh, you know, focused around building hardware and software products. Uh, but of course, 
you know, nothing is done in, in, a, in, a, in a silo. So uh, I often find myself sort of bridging the gap between brand and, and product and sort of have one leg on the brand side of the house and one leg on the product side. And I think that's where at least the companies that I've been working for find a lot of value in, in using me to bridge that sort of gap between brand and, and product. Yeah. And I think specifically at a startup, I think it's exciting because I think you can shape a lot, right? And I think by collaboration with other stakeholders, you can sort of uh, look across, I think, the intersection of like product design and maybe brand design. And, and of course, the, the product experience is at the core of the, the brand, right? So um, I think I think that's great. And I think what's interesting is also at Mason, you kind of focus on your mobile and hardware, right? Uh, at the same time. So digital and hardware. Uh, can you talk maybe a little bit more about about that and sort of from from your perspective as the person managing product design, what kind of challenges come along when you try to kind of create experiences across both digital and hardware? Yeah, so at at, um, at, at Mason we have we have a, we have a lot of different types of designers. We have electrical engineers, hardware designers, industrial designers, uh, what we call product designers traditionally, but at Mason, we call them software designers because there's confusion between, you know, industrial and yeah. software design. Um, and so right now the team is, is really focused around creating uh, connected guidelines, visual identity rules around software and hardware that can bridge the gap between software and hardware. I think what's, what's really unique about Mason um, is it's it's really first time opportunity to allow software to shape hardware and allow hardware to shape software uh, because traditionally companies they can't get into the hardware game right it's too hard the timelines it takes years to develop hardware products it costs millions of dollars so you know even the biggest companies in the world like delta or walmart they can't really afford to go down the path of creating custom hardware so what Mason's allowing them to do is, uh, you know, through a Lego structure of hardware, they, for the first time, can say, this is my use case, and I need the hardware to be shaped around my use case. Whereas traditionally, they would go out and buy a bunch of old tablets, they'd buy a bunch of, um, you know, iPads or Samsung devices, and they would put their application on it. Uh, they would give the device to, for example, a Delta employee, and the Delta employee would be doing whatever they're doing, whether it's checking people in at the airport or scanning boxes or scanning bags. Uh, and, you know, and they would have to use the existing hardware that's out in the world today. And so you haven't seen a huge amount of hardware uh, innovation, you know, in, in the way that we've seen software innovation for the past five, 10 years, there's been just a massive amount of software innovation in the world. And hardware is, is you know, it's, it's too difficult to kind of move quickly in that space and to innovate. Um, and so where, where Delta would go out and purchase, uh, I think the, the best way I've found to think about it is Delta would go out and purchase a bunch of old iPads and they would put their application on it. They would then send the iPad to their employee. They have to worry about, uh, you know, repairs and warehousing and logistics and shipping. Um, and then for them to update their application on that device, they have to have the device physically in their possession. So they have to get the device back from the employee, plug it in physically, and then make an update to it, right? So Mason is allowing them to do all of that remotely. So Delta no longer even has to touch the device. It can go directly from a Mason warehouse to a, to a Delta employee, and then Delta can remote into it, make updates, push their application, 
uh, have full control of the operating system, decide what features to turn on or off or put it into kiosk mode or open access, high security things like for government sectors. And that's because of the innovation of the mobile infrastructure that Mason's providing, the ability to manage fleets of devices and remotely monitor, troubleshoot, upgrade the devices without having to physically touch them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering where did the innovation come from in the sense that, you know, I think like, you know, usually you have basically a six sync platforms, right? Where developers can develop software for like iOS or Android, right? And there are, of course, different uh, hardware aspects uh, to it. They certainly have a certain runtime, right? Like, you know, there's a certain a certain amount of years where this works on this version of the operating system until it gets updated, right? And I think like one of the changes with hardware is then often, I guess, like, you know, the manufacturing, right? Was there a certain innovation on the manufacturing that allows you to, you know, create custom hardware for these, um, for these use cases? Um, or I'm wondering a little bit, what was the technical enabler, both on the physical and digital side that allows for that flexibility um, that you're describing? I think on the one side, on the hardware side that, you know, where you, you actually get that flexibility, you can actually create custom hardware. You know, the digital side, basically that long levity of software as sort of like platforms emerge and sort of like updatability and, 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 and all of that. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think supply chain issues are never going to go away, especially, you know, in today's age. There's um, even the biggest companies in the world, Qualcomm, Apple, are having major supply chain issues. Yeah. The way that we're thinking about building hardware is, again, in sort of a Lego structure format. So you have a, a baseline product, and now you need that product to scan boxes, right? So you can plug in peripherals. Or the company's moving into the RPM, remote patient monitoring healthcare space, which is a multi-billion dollar industry coming up right now. And so, you know, again, taking a core device and being able to put peripherals around it, like blood pressure cuffs and thermometers and you know, scales and so that you can meet with your doctor from the comfort of your home, uh, but you still have all of the different ways to measure your vitals and to send that back to your doctor. Um, so yeah, thinking about it in terms of sort of a Lego fashion where you can, you can plug things into base components and you can yeah. build what you need. Other use cases like clinical trials is a really big one um, where they're giving people a smartwatch for the clinical trial. And so they can answer some questions throughout the day as they're as they're trying a new drug uh, and, and simultaneously can be reading their vitals and, and sending that back and capturing all that data. Mm -hmm. So basically this, does the speed come into working with existing components and having that legal approach when it comes to hardware? Because actually like one of the challenges, you know, I think that you're describing from physical and digital design and sort of the different timelines. And I actually myself made a lot of experience uh, sort of working with these two different timelines, also specifically in the automotive sectors where we present, right? Where like building a vehicle takes very long, but building the software might not take so long, right? Yeah. So this is true in many cases, you know, people working in smart home, for example, you know, I was recently speaking to uh, one of the um, uh, design managers at Ikea, uh, for example, and if they're working in smart home, products they have the same thing right like hardware takes longer than software right mm -hmm. and you always have to think about like an evolution of the hardware and then see how the digital the digital experience makes up you also have to see like where does digital wants to go in the long run and what kind yeah. of physical enabler we need right because the mm -hmm. physical enabler take time sometimes they you know it, it, like digital enabler okay. take time like different backends different technologies but physical mm -hmm. enabler take a long more, lot more time 
So I'm wondering a little bit, does that speed and sort of that alignment between digital and physical design comes through having that Lego approach and basically being able to manufacture products in, at high speed? Yeah, I think so. To, just to be clear, Mason's not creating the software that goes on the devices, right? So yeah. in the example we were using, Delta makes their own application and they're going to put that application on the Mason device. The speed of hardware, it's called hardware for a reason, right? It's really difficult. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time to take it through all the PDT cycles and all the validation cycles and get it to markets and you know, get it certified for different countries. And there's a lot of complexity involved in supply chain, but the Lego, the Lego structure is enabling for the most part, you know, people need the baseline product. And then um, they, they, depending on their use case, they need it to sort of adapt to, uh, you know, we need this thing to scan boxes, right? Or we, we want this smartwatch to be able to sort of do X, Y, and Z. And so in that instance, we're able to, yeah, take take their use case and sort of work around that base component. I think that the, the benefit of Mason, it, it is getting to market quicker than you would be able to. It's having all the pipelines set up with logistics, with supply chain, uh, being able to use our in-house industrial designers, uh, hardware engineers, electrical engineers. And so, you know, a company that wants to, like, for example, the next Peloton, or the next, you know, Square, right? Who, who made their own hardware? Mason's allowing companies like that to innovate quicker, to focus on their software, so that they don't have to get into the hardware game. Mm -hmm. Because as we all know, once you step door in, in the door of the hardware space, it's a whole other world with completely different timelines. So now the next Square, the next you know startup that wants to make some sort of hardware software device, they can fo focus on their software. They can come to Mason for their hardware and for their mobile infrastructure, more importantly. Uh, and so they can manage their fleets of devices out in the world, in addition to using Mason to sort of innovate on that hardware space that they're doing. I see, yeah, that, that makes sense. And I assume when, you, when you're thinking about the industrial design part of the hardware piece, this is probably also is to a certain degree guided or run, or at least uh, basically directed a little bit by the needs and the feedback from the company that you work with, right? Because they're probably, you know, they, they, they have a certain corporate identity, certain brand, and so there's a certain customization in the product design, I assume, right? Which is based also on that collaboration with the partner, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so I think Mason is thinking about itself like the stage crew. We're behind the scenes and we allow the company to white label the product. Right. So we don't need to be, there's, there's some sort of co-branding that's happening as well, but for the most part, we're going to allow, for example, Delta to put their logo on the device and, you know, everybody thinks this is a Delta device. So, you know, we're giving them the opportunity to really focus on the experience of their software and not have to worry about the mobile infrastructure and the hardware. And, you know, his, historically they've been duct taping together these mobile solutions. Right. They're sort of like bootstrapping and they go out, they buy a bunch of old tablets. Those tablets go out of date really quickly. Security and software updates are no longer supported by Apple or by Android. Uh, and they're working within this sort of walled garden of an operating system. They can't customize the hardware whatsoever. Uh, and they just sort of have, you know, to work with what's out in the marketplace, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you, if you think a little bit about maybe also your, um, your past experiences, right? I mean, you have been working in, in different industries and, uh, all kind of led up to like now basically, you know, working on product design, basically working between like mobile and, and, and physical design. 
Um, can you a little bit talk a little bit more also about sort of your experiences that were before that? I think something specifically I could be interesting for the audience is that I think you'd really jump between different industries. And I think a lot of designers might be at that, uh, maybe at the point of their career where they may be thinking about like, uh, they maybe have been working at a certain industry for a while. And there's a certain fear, right? If you if you kind of jump into an area where you're maybe not the expert yet, right? Especially if you've built up some vertical knowledge in a certain space, right? Um, did you also felt that fear uh, sometimes to kind of go out of the bubble again? And sort of what was some of your experience when it comes to kind of jumping into com complete different experiences? Yeah, that, that is a great question. I, I have jumped around a lot of industries and I think what what enables me to jump into a new industry is the idea that I don't have to be the subject matter expert you know so the ability to facilitate and co-create to go find the subject matter experts to work with right to create user groups and focus groups of uh, of experts or real customers that can help guide the process you know sort of focusing on being the facilitator holding space for other people to come in and co-create along along with this designers don't have to be the expert designers in my opinion need to be uh you know somebody who can hold space and can help other people you know come into the creation process and facilitate that that co-creation um, there's certain you know principles and practices and fundamental sort of uh, frameworks and guidelines that we use as designers that help us move through discovery you know processes and you know using design thinking which is a, a widely overused term right now um you know but there's you know there's certain practices that we use as designers that help us to navigate finding the right answers and that doesn't mean that the answer has to come from us oftentimes the answer doesn't come from us right we we look outside of ourselves to experts or to the end user to find out what they what they want and what they need yeah so i i think i totally totally agree to what you say i mean um you know i think this is one of the strengths of designers right that i, I think not necessarily not necessarily we have to be the experts in everything we're designing for i think there's a certain vertical knowledge though that you build up over time right where you just become way more efficient mm -hmm. because you're kind of solving similar problems uh very often and i think you kind of become very very quick problem solver even to the visual ux service design, but you get an understanding. And I think you, designers can become very efficient. And I think there's an efficiency change towards joining somewhere and then like being there for, for, for a while and get, having that vertical knowledge. But even without it, depending on, of course, like what is you doing exactly? Um, uh, it's not underestimated that, you know, depending on what you work on, that the facilitation part is important for designers. It's specifically like, you know, nowadays, if, if you, if you have to work with kind of new challenges, like you do having at, at Mason, right, where maybe you don't know each client that, you know, comes to you and kind of partner that you, you work with, you have to understand their problem, what, they, what, why they want to build a device for what use case. Um, you really have to sort of get that understanding because maybe it's an industry that you never worked with and mm -hmm. you're not familiar with the workflows they, they're describing. So. Uh, but I think that's a sort of the, the beauty of design to kind of learn about these different things. Um, um, if you think though about maybe certain, were there certain challenges when you, when you were doing this or, uh, maybe a, a particular one that you can maybe remember that was a little bit more difficult sort of to, to overcome, uh, at the, at the very beginning, any kind of learnings that you made there, you know, when joining a company. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree that, you know, although you don't have to be a subject matter expert, once you work in a vertical for a good amount of time, you, you can operate, you know, more efficiently, higher velocity, um, and it, it does take some time. So I remember when I came in um, as a VP of design at Goldman Sachs, it was my first time working in the financial industry. I had never expected to work in the financial industry. And, you know, all the people, all my friends and my partner were like, wow, you're going to go work for, you know, Goldman Sachs. That's really different than the other companies you've worked for. And it, and it did. It, take, it, took me, it took me some time to wrap my head around the financial industry, terminology, the different constructs. And it's a very old company, 150-year-old company, um, a lot of legacy systems a lot of legacy processes. And when I came in, design still didn't have a seat at the table. Design leadership was just coming in. So, you know, there was a lot of culture shifting. There was a lot of sort of holding hands and bringing people along in the, in the journey. You know, what is research? How do we use research? What is UX design? What is UI design? How do we use these things? Um, and so that was, I think that was quite exciting. You know, I think uh, coming into Goldman was a big question mark for me. Uh, because it was a new industry. And yeah, it was a little bit, you know, a little bit concerning the fact that, you know, one, I had no experience with finance. And number two is I didn't really have any interest in finance either at that time, you know, and so why I took the job, I think I'm not quite sure. But in the end, uh, I really enjoyed it because we were able to affect a lot of culture shifting within the organization. By the time I left, we had a seat at the highest table. We were getting involved in strategic decisions at the highest level of the company. Uh, we had affected a new visual identity, a new brand system, put out new applications, uh, client-facing applications, internally-facing applications. Um, so I think what I would, you know, the advice I would give to people going into a new industry is remember that failing is the first ingredient of design and allow yourself to fail quickly, right? So be, be a creator, be a builder. Don't forget that, you know, design is about building something. So Take that into your daily practice of, uh, you know, do you create 10 things? One of them might be good. The other nine, probably not, right? So just keep on building and creating. Find mentors, find subject matter experts that you can lean on. Don't feel like you have to be the expert in the room, right? I think take your role as the facilitator, as the person that helps other people co-create and co-collaborate together. Yeah, that's a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to frame it. I really love what you just said that failure is the, or failing is the, the first ingredient of design, right? I mean, that's how you iterate, right? And it's just yeah. part of it. And, uh, you know, having that mindset, I think. Uh, and it, of course, there's fear kind of involved in that. Uh, otherwise, right. you're, not, you're not innovating in the first place, right? That's uh, right, yeah. So I, on my desk, I have a little sticky note that, that says exactly that. It says failure is the first ingredient in design. I've had it there for the last three or four years. And I, I keep it there because it's a daily reminder to myself to not get stuck in the, you know, in the synthesis. Don't get stuck in like overanalyzing. Oh, I need more research. Oh, I need more of this, right? And of course, we want to understand who we're building things for and why we're building them. But a lot of times, the fastest path is just to take a shot and then, you know, validate it, validate it later. Just, just concept it, right? And, and that's what designers. Are really good at you know we're the only ones that can conceptualize designers are the only ones that can cast a stone and put a visual to it and do it in a way that you can have a, a real you know, a prototype that feels kind of real and that you can get in front of people and that you can validate further 
Um, so I encourage myself, I encourage my teams to just remind themselves to be creators. That's what we are, we're, we're builders. And a lot of people get stuck in that, you know, paralysis analysis, they call, right? Just like mm -hmm. getting stuck and trying to find the answers in, in other areas. And sometimes you just have to take a step forward and be willing to fail in order to get to a successful outcome. Yeah, beautifully said, I think. I think we need some mugs or t-shirts from Design Drives with that with that poster quote. I think. I agree, <laughs> Sebastian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think really cool. Um, I think like also what you what you talked about at Goldman Sachs is also very interesting. I mean, that's sort of like a core topic of Design Drives always is that you know how do you kind of establish a design culture, right? How do you communicate in a company what design can deliver, how design can drive innovation, uh, and um, sort of maturing a design culture? I think. Um, it's, it's such an important topic of the podcast. So could you talk maybe a little bit more about sort of the design culture at Goldman Sachs and how did you approach that growth of design and how did you bring stakeholders along? Um, because I think that's sort of very interesting for people to learn about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's, I think there's, there's sort of two, two major ingredients there. One is affecting change as fast as you can. Right, so taking the iterative approach, find a little corner that you can make an adjustment to, that you can measure uh, the impact of it immediately. And that's gonna help build trust with your stakeholders and your partners, it's gonna allow them to see the value of design, even if it's something small, you know? So go look at the onboarding, go look at some of their digital systems and find, you know, find some, some user problems and, uh, and figure out how you can, you can execute on those as fast as you can and how you can measure the, uh, the value of that to the end user, that's gonna build trust, right? The other side of it uh, is, is just as important is creating some sort of North Star for the team to drive towards. You know, of course, if, if you don't know which direction you're going, we all know that over time, you just build a bowl of, you know, tangled spaghetti, right? And so that, that's what was happening at, at Goldman. Uh, before I came in, they were just bolting on, you know, more functionality, different functionality. They were just bolting it onto their platform without a view of the holistic sort of experience across the ecosystem. And they didn't have a North Star. They didn't have a direction they were working towards. And so, you know, over time, over years, you, you just, you don't really know what you're going to end up with. <laughs> and you end up building, you know, you end up just building whatever you build, right? So, so you, you have to take both approaches. One is that you know incremental updates and measuring that, and the other side is is setting a vision for the overall strategy, uh, setting a north star, getting people excited about that, uh, bringing them in to co-create and co-collaborate uh, around that north star. Um, you know, so bring in marketing, bring in sales, bring in operations. You know, get really tight with customer success. Really understand what people are saying about the current product and the customer success team. At, at Goldman, we would meet with our customer success team every two weeks and they would go over the, the top reported issues that were coming through. And you know, sometimes we would, we would drop our strategic work to go fix something that was a real problem happening right now, right? And so, so tuning in to the immediate, what's happening right now, figuring out how to measure that and affect change in the moment but then also casting a vision so that everybody can drive in that direction and getting people excited about that vision. Uh, I think you have to have sort of both sides of that. One is right now today, and the other one is where are we going in two years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the short term and the long term at the same time, right? Um, yeah. And um, I, I think like, you know, I, you know, when I speak to other design leaders, I think one of the 
like ongoing theme is that it's about listening right at the very beginning and i really like what you said it's about yeah listening but then you try to take one problem and attack that really quick and just to basically build that relationship also in in also in the short term already and mm -hmm. i think that that maybe speeds things up if you think about maybe the topic of uh, basically financial innovation right uh, since you gained some some experience there what do you think are opportunities for designers in the space um, you know, I think besides what you're doing, there's a lot of changes in the space, right? There's, um, everything of course around like, you know, blockchain and sort of like progressive ways of payment and the whole topic about like the unbanked, mm -hmm. uh, people who may not have actually a bank account. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for designers, but you may have a better kind of picture on that. Um, any kind of learnings on sort of the, the opportunities for designers working in the space? Of, of let's say financial innovations based on your past experiences and what kind of impact designers can create mm -hmm. yeah so what i would say is i'm not an expert in finance i never really expected to work in finance and i think that was that was part of my kind of special sauce coming into it i, I brought a totally different perspective than designers who work in that space um, yeah, clearly there's a lot of innovation happening there with decentralized banking and blockchain and, you know, all of these things that are, that are sort of hot topics in the moment. Um, but, you know, it, it comes down to experience like everything else, especially with this next generation of kids coming into the world, right? All they care about is experience. That's what everybody's focused on. And so, you know, having, you know, and the, the, the bar is really high, right? People expect products to be smart, predictive, proactive, and and we all know that doesn't just happen by accident, right? That, that's it's a very intentional thing that you have to map out through user journeys and flows and uh, really understand how to make something feel, you know, feel good. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunities, just like in healthcare, just like in government, in finance, you know, these industries that are highly regulated, that uh, it's hard to affect change in, you know, finance, in healthcare, in government. Uh, and so I think that's why, you know, they're sort of lagging behind a little bit. Uh, finance has been catching up, um, but the big one that we're tackling is healthcare at Mason, you know, coming up. And so, um, again, you know, I think it's, it's around the experience that you build for the end user uh, and that, you know, ultimately becomes the key differentiator. Uh, and so there's tons of opportunities in these highly regulated spaces to come in and, you know, fix the sins of the past is how I would call it. Uh, and, you know, make it a smoother ride for people. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's great that you kind of connected to basically other industries, which I guess are similar because I think the the opportunities for innovation comes through the legacy, comes through the the um, the systems that are in place, through the regulations uh, that make it difficult. But that is both a, a challenge and an opportunity, right? And sure. this is not just true for finance, but this is true for healthcare. Um, environment topics and, and many others so yeah i think very cool samuel thanks for sharing your your, your story and background i think it's super interesting um, to hear i think what would be also interesting for the audience to hear is like what is your motivation as a designer uh when you look at the opportunities that that you can tackle as a designer is there anything kind of that that um, is, is driving you that you know um, fuels you with motivation when it comes to your work yeah great question um 
know, I think over the years, uh, love for psychology and uh, sort of drive to understand how humans experience, whether it's an ad campaign, a digital product, a physical product or experience has been, you know, continuous curiosity and exploration in design, just understanding the psychology around how things are used. Um, you know, working to understand how a user's brain connects to an experience that sparks excitement, inspiration uh, is, you know, it's something that sort of motivates me. I love to see people enjoy and, you know, have a good experience of whatever they're doing. Um, I think also when it comes to the team, recognizing that everybody has to start somewhere and that many people have unrealized potential that needs to be developed. Uh, finding you know ways to bring out individuals' talents and steer them in the right direction, helping them to set goals. Uh, one tactic I really enjoy is the thank you letter to self. So you know, imagining two years from now uh, where you want to be and sort of writing that letter to thank yourself for doing you know X, Y, and Z to get there has been a huge help for me personally and and something that I employ on my teams. Um, and then, you know, helping teams to develop empathetic emotional intelligence for each other, for their stakeholders, for the customer, helping them to understand that visualizing the world from somebody else's perspective and understanding that person's feelings is just as important within the team as it is in building user-centric products for end users. And I think what you were just mentioning about, like, setting your goal where you want to be in two years, is it something that you kind of try to apply on the project level, on the product level, or more on a personal development level? Yeah, so it, it can definitely be applied on a, on a product level through North Stars, you know, creating sort of a vision of where yeah. the company is going to go in two years. I think it's, it's even more powerful when you do it on a personal level and you try to help people develop their soft skills, right? The, the hard skill is using, you know, Figma or Photoshop or, you know, Illustrator and or whatever design, you know, CAD design for industrial design programs, Rhino and stuff is, that stuff's really great. And I think we, we sort of expect that our design team is gonna be an expert at using those tools, but developing those soft skills and helping people to understand how important it is to, uh, you know, to go beyond being a good designer and move into that space of being a facilitator, of being a co-creator, of holding space, you know, for other people to be designers, uh, is I think it's been really important for me and for, for the teams that I work with. Um, you know, creating an open invitation for teams to dream big is a big one, right? Uh, you know, being the asker of big questions that drive curiosity and the maker of big ideas and helping them feel comfortable failing. You know, failing is again, the first ingredient in design. So, you know, allowing people to make mistakes and to figure out how to, you know, get to a successful result. Um, it provides that sort of personal security that the team needs, which as we all know, when you don't feel secure personally, you know, it's, it's hard to make good work, right? You have to feel good to make, to make good. Uh, a great way to frame it. Um, and I really love what you said about, you know, I think that's sort of like one of the, one of the roles of a leader in general, not just a design leader, right? Is that, and it, it's so rewarding, right? To uplift people and like help them to succeed and, and, and sort of like how you basically framed it around. Yeah. Basically also looking into their personal development, where do they want to grow? How we can you help them to, to get there, right? To understand like where they could maybe improve or what would be beneficial for them and, 
what would be aligning with with their personal goals and um sort of um and I th- yeah and i think like an invitation for people to kind of uh, think about that future and kind of develop towards that that's i think a beautiful mm. way to kind of look at the the role of a of a director and, and leader so yeah thanks for showing that this is what i tell my teams our our job is to be in service of other groups so we think about product as our clients we think about engineering as our mm. clients just like the end user and it's our job to to hold space you know nobody else can concept and can dream the future like a designer can right so it's the designer's job to help other people create that future and to facilitate the space for them to be able to do it right we don't have to have the answers as designers yeah and that's that's for me that's a huge blessing you know we, we i don't have to feel like i have to have the answers for something yeah, yeah. Exactly. and so what i can do is i can just hold space for other people to dream with us and we capture those dreams and so you know of course if you have just me in a room you just have my own thoughts which is you know maybe not worth much but if you have me and 15 other people in the room and you facilitate that properly then you have a lot of dreams that you can bring you can bubble up and you can you know create a roadmap and a vision around and that is design design is co-creation co-collaboration it's not you know and when we talk about working autonomously teams working autonomously we're not saying do it all yourself right we're saying hold space for other people to do it with you but autonomously sort of drive drive the vision forward no i i, co- I couldn't agree more samuel i think I think you you really frame I think a lot of important topics here that I think I, I totally agree. I think yeah, I think that's exactly w- what design is, right? We don't have to have all the answers, but it's basically facilitating that process and visualizing the source of others, the source of the collective, the the mm-hmm. the, the problem solving of the collective, um, and sort of um, helping to kind of paint that picture uh, to oversimplify. Um, and sort of bring everyone together because what you what the problem is like if you have multiple people it's all just theoretical right before you create any prototype create any kind of mock-up visualization or kind of experience it's all just theoretical discussions right and mm-hmm. a, a prototype could be as easy as creating drawing a doodle on a whiteboard um, it could be the first step towards like aligning like 10 stakeholders towards like where we want to go could be going as far as building like a full-fledged prototype uh, but i think it's that bandwidth and i think that's sort of um, um sort of really like an impact designers can do one of the examples that's coming up where we often up in the in the in the podcast is like if you if you think about maybe a design leader being in a meeting with different stakeholders say as purchasing business <laughs> and Sort of like as a designer, you're listening in. They they're talking about things that you maybe cannot like fully un- like understand. Specifically, we join newly to the company, but like just being there and maybe trying to kind of doodling it out uh, was one of the big sort of things. Um, how I, I was talking to many designers, how they could involve themselves into that problem solving discussion uh, by just being there uh, uh, already and sort of like connecting the dots, right? And kind of trying to visualize mm. it, even on a simple level. That's that's already sort of, I think, what design is facilitation. Um, and yeah, I think um, I think you did a great way of framing that. Um, cool. Oh, thanks for sharing. There, there is a certain understatement that you were describing, like a certain um, uh, sort of um, a, approach to our stakeholder management where you were saying, okay, like we were the listeners. We basically put the puzzles together, right? And I think by that you're driving, co- you're driving like a co-author process, right? Where you're yeah. trying to take, it's about like, 
getting as much as many signatures basically under what you're building and you know not making it something that is just signature by the designer because the, the reality right. is if that's happening it's gonna fail for sure because nobody that's wants right. to take that forward nobody feels that it's that they, it doesn't generate collective ownership right and i think mm -hmm. you always want to get to a point where you have collective ownership behind what you're building right and i think the only way is like you said it's like you know stepping back and sort of bringing in the other people in uh through the forefront uh, uh key decision makers uh, um, as well so and i think the other thing that you're describing is important that like the detachment i think this is hard for for you know any designer i was struggling with that myself when I was young, I said, you know, you're so emotionally invested into what you're doing, specifically as a designer. And so if you really try to make the best out of it, and, and there's, it's sort of a, uh, sort of, it's, it's sort of that two, two sides of that. On the one side, I think that, that ownership creates drive and, and motivation to create the best result. Yeah. Uh, on the other side, I think like you need to take away that ownership to really drive innovation in the first place. So that kind of play between like having feeling enough ownership in order to kind of um, uh, to um, to make a great design and, and, and keep people motivated and and sort of like um, 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 sort of like innovate and on the other side is like you also have on the other side that aspect where you the advantage of not having enough ownership that's sort of a balance act right in the project mm -hmm. um, it is so, yeah because designers you know we we like to go and yeah. you know, make make things beautiful on our own right and we like to take ownership of it we say hey look at this thing that i created right and i think that's that's the kind of first that's the first issue there is yeah. uh you know the key to presenting new work is making sure that you have the signatures of the key people in the room yeah. before you present it and you do that by co-creating with them from the beginning right so for example, we just presented a new North Star for Mason, and uh, and that was done through co-creation. So I knew that you know the really important people in the room that were you know there was like 85 people we were presenting to, and the really important people in the room they were part of that co-creation process. So there's no question in my mind if there's going to be buy-in for that concept, right? You you should never be in a situation where you're presenting something and you're not sure how people are going to react to it. You know, do the work, bring them along in the journey, co-create with them, and then you won't have to worry about that. Yeah. No, absolutely. Nice <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's like safe processes to to sort of navigate. You know, and then as we say in the industry, you know, don't be precious with the work, right? If you co-create, then it's not yours, and and you don't have to be precious with it. You don't have to, you know, don't hang on to it. Don't feel like somebody's stepping on your face if they're, you know, giving you critiques about it. You know, it's an evolution. It's a, it's a journey that gets to a result uh, at the end, but it can't just be done by yourself. You know, you yeah. got to bring everybody else in the journey. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of designers struggle with. Like, um, like um, basically connecting so much to the work where I'm the work, and like if the work is not good, like I'm not a good designer, yeah. right? So right. I, I think that's 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 a very like no, you really need to detach yourself. You're not the product. You're not the, the design solution, right? Like like you're not fully in control and there's a beauty to that and an advantage to that um yeah i mean super great insights uh, thanks for for sharing them samuel thank you so much yeah samuel uh, i would love to continue talking to you uh, but i think we need to wrap it up unfortunately because of time so i would just like to thank you on behalf of the audience for you know taking your time uh, to chat with me today thank you so much yeah pleasure to be here 
All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments about your thoughts and biggest learnings from the episode. I'm always super curious about that. You can also tag me in a post about your biggest takeaway and share your insights with others. Pass on your learnings. If the episode provides you a lot of value, make sure to follow, subscribe, and share it with friends and colleagues so they also have the chance to learn and grow. Until next time, cheers.